As Kathleen Cleaver said during the height of the Black Panthers era, there is a new awareness among black people that their own natural physical appearance is beautiful, and that's the way it should be. Silhouettes, a fashion history podcast where I explore the importance of the clothes we wear. Today, I want to talk about a topic that is massively important now, right more than ever, the Black is Beautiful movement in the USA. Now, my focus for this episode, as it's fundamentally a history podcast, will be more about the Black is Beautiful movement of the 60s and early 70s, maybe moving into the late 70s. But I do think we can learn a lot from these roots in current times. I also want to preface this by saying I obviously can't begin to understand what these and current black men and women are experiencing in the US, but I wanted to research a podcast episode that focuses on this topic just to learn as much as I can on the history of the movement in civil rights America. It's a fascinating topic in terms of fashion history clothes have historically been a way to be subversive they can be political in a huge myriad of ways around the world particularly the black fashion movement be this black dandyism black panthers uniforms or the reclaiming of cultural african roots through fashion through my research for this topic i found that fashion has always been a way of protesting for the black community in america and it's therefore no more important to talk about than right now I want to open up a discussion surrounding the policies of fashion and teach myself as much as I can along the way. So to begin, Black is Beautiful is a cultural movement that was started in the United States in the 1960s that bled all the way through nearly to the early 80s. This movement began in an effort to counteract the idea in American culture that black features and black images were less attractive or less desirable than those of white people. As Maxine Craig says in her book Ain't I a Beauty Queen, the phrase black is beautiful was never synonymous with one political group, but it was widely used in terms of expressing self-acceptance for black individuals and reference to the reclamation of traditional styles and acceptance of black natural beauty. As she explains, it was all a about race and using this as a subversion in the context of the black diaspora and white supremacist socio-political context of America. It was a movement based around a fight for an equal perception of the black body to help undo all of the negative ideas brought about by a history that was created under white supremacy. And this bled into the Black Panthers and civil rights as well as fashion movements in music like disco. And that's what makes it such an important catch-all term. This movement really took form because the media and and society had an aggressively negative perception of the African-American body, one that was synonymous as only being suitable for a slave status. Essentially, it was a clapback. It was just a way of saying, we are here, we are valid, and we are beautiful too. It wasn't a movement to quash white culture, it was a way to elevate blackness. Essentially, carving out individual identities in times of turmoil. Now, of course, it's naive to equate the liberalism of these movements with complete and fundamental liberty, because we can all see that that's not true. But in a lot of ways, it did allow some freedom of expression for many black men and women in the mid-20th century. Clothing was ultimately a fundamental right that was stripped from black people during times of slavery that perpetuated the sense of black diaspora. 
Monica Miller in her book Slaves to Fashion, which is an amazing read if you can access it, says that clothing and dress was used as a way for black individuals to style their way from slave to self. And that's what this is. It's all about the self. It's reclaiming a huge area of importance in terms of allowing individuals to be humans, humans with personality, with minds, with taste, with a culture of their own. In fact, Jeffrey Ogbar has stated in his book Black Power, Radical Politics and African-American Identity, fashion was unequivocally the movement's most visual manifestation. It is what allowed black people to be seen in a way that was beautiful and stylish, but also politically important and subversive. Now, I'll get back to the importance of the 60s and 70s in a little bit, but there's an early equally important fashion movement that I think needs talking about in terms of this idea of identity, and that's black dandyism. If you've never heard or seen any images of this style, then you really need to. It's so slick, it's beautiful, and it was hugely influential. It meant and means far more than many may initially assume. It was essentially a fashion reclaim. And of course, like anything, black dandyism has morphed over the years, moving from simply dressing sharply in the fashion of the times to what is now the combination of dressing sharply and with loud African-inspired prints and colours. But all in all, it's a fashion movement that subverts notions of traditional masculinity and allows black men to explore individuality. It's an embodied response to changing circumstances. I did some research into the dandy as an icon and it has always been born out of times of socio-political change in France and in Britain in the 18th century particularly. Times when, as Monica Miller again explains, during this time notions of gender and class were changing in order to critique social norms and upheave the status quo through this visual incarnation and it's therefore a style that was both claimed and reclaimed by black men for the same reason. I found a quote from an article that I do want to drop in here as it sums up the value of this movement much more than I would be able to tell you. (laughs) It's from Paper Magazine on June the 1st, if anyone wants to investigate it further and read it for themselves. We saw dandyism touted by individuals such as Frederick Douglass and later W.E.B. Du Bois. I think in an earlier era, it was deeply rooted in respectability. It then reflected scholastic rigour and self-respect. Think Malcolm X and his sharp suits or James Baldwin. Today, dandyism is a more recent manifestation of hip-hop culture. Black dandies are using hip-hop methods of sampling to mix styles and articles of clothing from different eras and cultures to articulate statements of black masculinity and individuality. I feel like it's a way to show the potential of black individuals' identities. The same article also makes an interesting point that in a different context, perhaps during the late 60s and early 70s, at the height of the black power movement, black dandyism could have been seen as passive and co-opting into the corporate machine. But in contemporary society, when corporations have co-opted hip-hop and capitalising off a hyper-masculine, popularised image of black men as a thug, dandyism is most certainly radical, subversive and resistant. It's oppositional fashion at its finest. Contemporary black dandies, particularly the ones in my book, are appropriated white standards of dress, flipping it on its head and creating a new urban fashion statement that speaks to transnational African diasporan identity. So essentially what they're saying here is that black can be beautiful and it can be beautiful in a multitude of ways and subversive fashion doesn't always have to to be subversive in the typical sense. And I suppose that the politics of fashion and its subversive notions is all context dependent and it depends on eras, it depends on the people, it depends on gender, it depends on so many different things. What might have been seen as subversive in the 60s and 70s is now changing and will always change from now on. 
But now, obviously, moving on from this idea of subversive fashion, we need to talk about the 60s and 70s. Most notably, obviously, would be the Black Panthers. But it's also something that can be seen permeating through all fashion evolutions for people of colour at this time period. So in the late 60s, as Jeffrey Ogbar explains, the Black Power movement was in full swing and its influence was permeating black culture and youth culture too. Fashion evolution was definitely more widespread by these movements, not only for black people, but importantly by them, most notably by the Black Panthers and the Black is Beautiful movement. However, the Black Panthers were somewhat separated from the Black is Beautiful movement, as I found out. As Ogbar says, it was an ubiquitous slogan. (laughs) Essentially, Black is Beautiful was a movement that made popular more traditional African cultural roots, using African patterns in fashion and wearing culturally classic dashkis as an example. Google these if you're unaware of what they look like. Whilst this movement was socio-politically important, it seems many extreme radicals through this time period thought that wearing such traditional clothing made black people feel like they needed to prove just how black they were. Now, obviously, not everyone felt this way, and I'm sure for many black men and women, styling themselves in these culturally traditional styles connected them to their roots. Their blackness was also a way of carving out their own sense of self. But nevertheless, from what I've read, there is a sizable amount of evidence to suggest that many didn't subscribe to this. And to be honest, Black Panthers and Black Dandyism too is a reflection of that. The Black Panthers had something special. Their style was so recognisable, and they really have this power to them in terms of fashion. According to Panther Fred Hampton, the real threat to power structures wasn't wearing traditional African clothing, but political education and revolutionary action. This is most likely since into the 70s, African-inspired clothing was reaching the mainstream. It's an image we've all seen, the white male hippies wearing sandals and African patterned overshirts. Ebony Magazine, for example, has run several articles focusing on African-inspired styles for the masses at the time period. Black faces and black styles were also utilised in other advertisements, cigarettes, for example. This alone removed the power of the original clothes and completely countered the Panthers' movement. Equally, this traditional style in many ways gave white companies and writers a whole new reason to vilify and mock black culture, bringing ugliness to the movement, as Ogbar explains. Therefore, the Panthers also saw this look as something that was impeding their revolutionary legitimacy. The Panthers therefore revolutionised something called revolutionary chic. Whilst the Black is Beautiful movement was an important stepping stone into making traditional black style seen as beautiful and widespread. The Panthers, it seemed, needed to revolutionise a new style to combat the way it had been tarnished. I'm sure you've seen it. The iconic Panther uniform included a black leather jacket, a powder blue shirt, black trousers and a black beret. It was so sleek and so visually iconic, strong and stark and very powerful. The beret actually is an important image and a very interesting sort of accessory for the movement. Typically, it was worn in military uniforms in years before and it sort of represented a new wave of power for this revolutionary group. It exemplifies this serious militancy that the Panthers had. The beret also became an important image of black beauty and there are even images of women wearing dashikis and berets at universities and in youth groups. These individuals often apparently were not self-described militants but it shows how deep these movements permeated black youth culture in this time period. I found a quote from a youth party member named Regina Jennings that explains that local youth appropriated the uniform and it became a mainstream part of youth fashion culture. 
She says that although this imitation makes us feel rather proud, one had difficulty discerning Oakland youth from Panthers. Ogbar also makes an interesting point surrounding this widespread Panther image. He says that whilst the Panthers had been highly critical of the popularity of traditional African styles, associating them with cultural nationalism, the Panthers failed to acknowledge that they had in their own way cultivated a cultural nationalist style themselves. The beret became a national fashion icon, not just for black youths, but white, Latino and Asian militants would atop the beret. However, the Panthers did adopt some elements of more classical African styles through music and food and hair. I'll get back to the importance of hair in a little bit. And so the Black is Beautiful movement permeated culture in more ways than one, as well as the Black Panthers in more ways than just fashion. But ultimately, this was its clearest manifestation, and that can't be argued against, I don't think, as it really just harks back to that idea of invisibility versus visibility in terms of subversion that I mentioned earlier. Paul C. Taylor, in his book, A Philosophy of Black Aesthetics, talks about this in more detail and the idea of presence and personhood. When it comes down to it, I suppose that's what the Panthers and the early Black is Beautiful movement was all about carving individuals out as people with voices and modern political philosophies through visuality and through dress. The pre-1960s dress for the black community was either whitewashed or even earlier was slave dress, which, as he explains, demonstrated what he calls a disdain for black presence, which was not only the denial of someone existing, but the refusal for an individual to exist in a particular setting. This is very well put, in my opinion. Um, it really sums up an experience that I have not and never will experience, but also tells us how important clothing and fashion was in this era in terms of overthrowing that mentality and for black individuals to carve out identities and be visible, whether this was through traditional African styling or the more militant styles of the Panthers. No wonder the simplicity of the beret became such a token of this as it was accessible but also massively recognisable. As Lewis Gordon puts it, black presence was no longer an absence, but a whole new presence in and of itself. It was a personhood. And having this cultural representation was allowing people of colour to be people, simply put. Of course, there's more to this in terms of job roles, housing, political power and so forth. But I think these fashion evolutions are massively important to credit for this. And the Black is Beautiful movement had a lot to show for it in its wider terms. Paul Taylor calls this moving from person to character, not just a body taking up space or filling in a role, but being allowed to be a fully rounded human being with political power, personal taste, emotion, and the ability to make educated choices about that, how they want to be seen. It's expressive culture. And that was deeply political for black individuals during this era. So considering this, I found a lot of information that accredits the return to natural hair for black women in the 60s and 70s as a sense of power and sums up this idea of being seen. As I found out, black men and women in the 50s and before were and can be seen in a number of images forced to chemically straighten their hair or wear wigs to fit in with what was seen as socially acceptable at the time period. Black people had gone to huge lengths in the past to fit their hair into societal standards. Greasy, chemically strong pomades, hair oil and hot combs and irons that damage black hair. Even lye was apparently used to straighten hair and make it deemed more respectable, despite lye, as I'm sure you know, being essentially poison. But ultimately, these styles reflected a segregation of their own personhood and personal choice and were a visual way of suppressing black identity, making them almost invisible as black individuals, as I mentioned earlier. They were told and expected to fit in rather than stand out with their own natural hair. 
Basically, black hair matters hugely in terms of political fashion of the time. This one choice to return to natural styles such as an afro was a massive stepping stone in reclaiming power and this sense of self. Whilst the afro wasn't and isn't a low-maintenance style from what I found out and videos I've watched, it's quite the opposite. Obviously, I'm a white woman and have no experience with black hair myself. But it seems that what the hairstyles represented and still represent made this upkeep valid rather than an upkeep that was dangerous and forced upon them and damaging, merely to upkeep a style that represented oppression. Also, interestingly, don't forget, Afro forks became a fashion accessory in and of themselves in the late 60s for the Panthers too, showing just how important hair was in terms of this fashion and evolutionary style. Not only did the Afro fork represent change in hair, but became a visual accessory in the same way the beret had. Angela Davis was a spearhead for the natural hair movement, particularly the Afro. The Afro is a hugely important and influential symbol. There's a documentary on YouTube called Heritage that I definitely recommend watching, but I definitely think the Afro is probably the most striking and tangible look of this time period for people of colour, and that's probably what made it so influential, just how visually striking it is in comparison to the sort of styles that were popular during the 50s. As Maxine Craig says, a black woman could feel a sense of exhilaration in the 60s by walking down the street without straightened hair and the afro exemplified beauty, defiance and black pride and this joy comes from how disregarded black bodies had been in the past. It was a style that was adopted by those from all classes and backgrounds in the black community and as with others it began with the Black is Beautiful movement and the reclaiming of more traditional African style narratives that I mentioned earlier. It was then later adopted as an even more political image from the Black Panthers as well as a whole lot of other grassroots social political parties and movements. The Panthers are just the most visually iconic and well-known. Essentially, it was more than just hair. I have actually read that the Afro was seen as a hugely political statement in terms of rebellion against beauty standards of the time, but was also gaining major traction in the black community and becoming mainstream, so much that Afros were banned from the workplace due to its political connotations. And many individuals who were political spearheads, such as Kathleen Cleaver, had to abandon the style to not let law enforcement catch on as to what they were doing in certain spaces. Interestingly, I found out that in 1973, an African-American model named Naomi Sims changed her career and began manufacturing wigs that were specifically at black women. Each style was apparently given an African name and three years later she published a book on black beauty encouraging black women to be themselves. As she said, you do not necessarily have to wear dashikis to prove you are proud of being black. But over time the mainstream started to catch on to the popularity of these black hairstyles, particularly afros and white individuals started adopting the style and ultimately that removed its original purpose and the meaning of its reclamation. I found out through my research that Afro wigs, such as the ones made by Naomi Sims as I mentioned earlier, were becoming a white fashion accessory and were worn not just by black people but from people of all different races. Disco and funk style of the mid to late 70s is an example of this. Disco hair is traditionally an Afro and originally these musical scenes were ones that adopted the Afro hairstyle as an iconic part of the style, specifically by black people, but the more popular they got and the more popular they got within certain musical spaces, they were adopted by not just black people and essentially just became a fashion fad rather than a political movement. There's apparently evidence of white protesters of the Vietnam War wearing their hair in a style resembling the Afro, which was an indication of how much the meaning of the look had completely changed. But I mean, nevertheless, its initial importance and its reincarnation as a black style 
can't be underappreciated and what it means today and what it meant then is still important to the black movement. The idea of reclaiming hair is also important in terms of black beauty standards for women particularly and reclaiming those awful racist characters and stereotypes from times before. This idea of pushing aside racist imagery and reclaiming black faces and black styles is beautiful rather than something to be vilified for and laughed at. This is what Maxine Craig talks about and it's the degradation of black bodies and how it was particularly painful for black women in a male supremacist society, let alone a white one. That's what's called double jeopardy. Women were essentially valued for their beauty, so much so that phrases from Helen Rubinstein like there are no ugly women, only lazy ones, permeated advertisements pre-1960s. Yet, if black bodies were deemed unattractive or even invaluable, what hope did dark-skinned women have in a time where women were valued almost solely for their beauty? Tightly curled hair was a beauty style that was not included in the standard of what was deemed beautiful and so making the afro a beautiful and wanted style allowed black women particularly to reclaim an image that had vilified them pre-war with racist caricatures and excluded them in later beauty standards. Even mixed-race women who did not have as kinky hair were forced to straighten their hair because even a slight curl on a darker skin tone represented this blackness that was so shameful. Not all women and families however had the means to use expensive straightening treatments and many males even, I'm sure, had to improvise and use household measures to fit into this norm, which really just shows how rigid this expectation was, especially as black communities were often in economic disadvantages at the time. I found a quote from a woman recalling a childhood experience here, and it's really interesting. As she says, straightening hair was such a ritual. It's like, how straight could it be? How long could it last? I remember one time we ran out of grease to straighten our hair and my mother used Crisco, and that was the straightest our hair had ever been but then my sister came home and said somebody told me my hair smelled like fried chicken so we would never let her do our hair with crisco again but at first we thought we'd really stumbled onto something the fact that using cooking oil on your hair was seen as such a revelation to fit into this standard really just sums up how much of an expectation it was on women and how desperate they were to fit into it because they knew that they had no choice. Craig explains something interesting here. She says that whilst in the years before the civil rights movement, a black woman could not remove the darkness of the skin, she could make her hair straighter and lighter, so much so that straight hair on black women became the norm, as I mentioned before. With hair straightening mandatory for black women and kinky hair unseen in public, the afro was a massive step in the direction of acceptance. She uses a quote here that basically states that hair must be straight in the privacy of one's home and kinky or nappy hair was never to be seen in public essentially seen by anyone that wasn't black the chemicals used on black women's hair also represented an oppression much more than being deemed ugly or shameful it disallowed them to engage in a host of leisurely activities as well black women for example had to avoid getting their hair wet so as never to be seen without the chemicals doing what they were supposed to be doing swimming, hairdressers, walking in the rain sweating in the gym and any activity that would create moisture were avoided the afro was therefore more than just being black, but allowed women small freedoms such as these. As I said before, it represented an acceptance of just being human. In Craig's book, she includes a segment about a woman sort of talking about this as a topic. One woman told about being the only black woman at her college in the early 1960s and living in a dormitory with a public kitchen. Standing in the cooking area, pressing her hair in front of her white fellow dormitory residents would have been mortifying, but having unstraightened hair was equally disgraceful. 
Her quandary was intensified because the college had a swimming requirement that most students pass during their first year. She dropped out of the swimming class after the first weeks because of the difficulty of finding privacy to straighten her hair several times a week. As each year passed, the swimming requirement remained unfulfilled. In her last year, on a trip to a big city, she found a barber who gave her a professional chemical straightener that kept her hair straight even after contact with water. She used the straightener in a dormitory, learned to swim and eventually graduated. The sheer fact that being seen without her straightened hair was so shameful almost disallowed her from graduating college is seen as extreme now. Clearly, these beauty standards were an area of struggle for black women who had gained some class in society, and it's difficult to know what the Afro represented to them. In Craig's book, she gives evidence to suggest that for middle-class black women and those who had carved themselves some privilege in white society, grooming reflected a willingness to clap back at this idea of black beauty being shameful, to show that they were as beautiful as white individuals, and in doing so, they were happy to perhaps adopt more white styles. Again, she uses a really interesting quote here from a woman about grooming. As she says, When I came to Marquette University, I didn't get my hair straightened regularly. And a group of girls, African-Americans, came to me and said, You can't do that here. People will look and think of us as country. There was this sense of good hair and bad hair and looking groomed. People would think of us as country, they said. The condition of the hair on Christian's head reflected not only her own appearance, but also that of the woman of the race. Country connoted the rural poverty and lack of sophistication that her fellow students had escaped by attending a predominantly white upper-class Midwestern university, and she was expected to maintain that distinction in her appearance. Straightened hair was represented access to hair products, sanitation, leisure, and relative prosperity. A woman who put time and money into her appearance was dignified, and her dignity spoke well of the race. Grooming was a weapon in the battle to defeat racist depictions of blacks. Good grooming was socially encouraged for all women during the 50s and 60s. Black mothers incorporated existing gender norms into their efforts to properly raise daughters amid the hostility of white racism. Many young African-American girls in middle-class society learned to behave and appear well-groomed in the context of lessons about their obligation to the race. Interestingly, then, there may have been a whole host of women who felt as if the Afro removed this achievement or perhaps not achievement, but this sense of fitting in and being deemed beautiful. Whether they wanted to or not, they understood that that was a part of their life and that was what they had to do in the socio-political context, as sad as that seems now. Also, according to Craig, again, she's great. <laughs> in 1968, when Ebony magazine showed images of models wearing afros, distraught female readers sent letters to the editor. Shirley Drake apparently wrote, Each time I walk down the street and see another woman of my race wearing one of those hideous naturals i'm so humiliated i could cry similarly mrs k.e williams wrote i'm attempting to rear my children to be proud of their race all the naturals do is accentuate the negatives when in the late 60s and early 70s members of the older generation saw the way young blacks flaunted nappy hair and afros they were aghast at what they saw as a reckless rejection of appearances in 1969 during a student strike in harlem a group of black female city university students formed a workshop to talk about their concerns they ardently discussed the direction of the black movement, sexism, and, with just as much passion, generational conflicts about hair. Adele Jones told the others, I have a girlfriend whose mother actually went into fits when her daughter walked in with an afro, laid down on the floor and cried. The mother, Jones explained, wanted her daughter to look presentable. 
a word that implied both employable and non-threatening to whites. In the mother's view, straightened hair was the only way to achieve that look. Another student present at the gathering agreed, they're afraid for us, afraid for the reaction against us. Some daughters resorted to deception to avoid arguments at home. Linda Berman recalled women who had to wear wigs, straight wigs, till they got to the bus stop, then took off their wigs where they had their natural hair underneath. Therefore, regardless as whether it was accepted or not by the black community as a whole, regardless of this, the importance of the Afro politically cannot be undermined. And it's just sad that these elderly black women felt the need to fit in and felt so ashamed of their natural hair and for their daughters to wear their natural hair. The Black is Beautiful movement and the Black Panthers even therefore represented perhaps what they knew society deemed at this time period as shameful and unbeautiful and didn't want that for their children or granddaughters even. So to round off this is clearly a topic that is very information heavy and there was so much happening in a short space of time and so many conflicting ideals and I'm sure I missed a huge amount on important information but I wanted to make this a short podcast just one that would sum up the ideas and maybe educate people a little of the black experience in this time period and particularly the importance of the relationship between fashion and politics remember this is a fashion podcast and I think it's clear how important fashion movements were in the fight for personhood during the 60s and 70s I also learned a lot and I hope you learned some things too I studied this topic at uni and that was really the spearhead for me to start educating myself bit by bit into the struggle of people of colour, particularly in the mid-century. And I wish I'd made more of an effort between then and now to do more and learn more. I read books by black authors, I read a lot of educational books about the topic, but that isn't enough really at the end of the day, is it? And in many ways for me, learning about the importance of fashion and hair in this era has been massively helpful in teaching me about the subtle liberties that were removed from black individuals before the war in regards to fashion and hair, and therefore what an important movement the Black is Beautiful movement was. I hope this episode, if anything, has given at least one person some insight into something they may have previously been unaware of. Obviously, I'm not a professional in the topic. I've just gathered my information from books and websites and articles written by black individuals. If that's the way that you find out about the struggles, then so be it. And I hope that that spurs you on to do more important things. I will definitely take away with me the iconography of the beret and appreciate these roots every time I wear one in solidarity. But anyway, guys, remember, read up, research, sign petitions, do what you can. I'll see you next time. Stay fab, everyone.